Well, before we begin, why don't I lead us in prayer, and then let me um, say a few introductory words uh, about the Sunday School class and the content so that you have an idea uh, what's been proposed and what I hope to do, and um, just set the tone. Uh, that, that would probably be helpful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are the creator and sovereign in history and uh, that you sent your son to die on our behalf. Lord, as we turn to this portion of your Psalter, we ask that you would open up our eyes uh, to see wonderful things from your word. It is broader than all the heavens, uh, but we need your help, Lord, uh, not only today, but in the weeks uh, to come to clear distractions from our mind and and take advantage of this opportunity to learn more of you. Uh, Father, uh, please we plead with you. Uh, leave us not unmoved by the presence of yourself and your word. Uh, in these weeks to come, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, did everybody get one of these? This is uh, the first couple chapters of a manuscript that I... Um, rough draft, by the way, so uh, be kind for typos. I would welcome you to let me know if you find any or grammatical infelicities or whatever, Um, so uh, those little daggers to the heart. And uh, so anyway, this this is a a book I wrote on the Asaphic Psalms. It's it's in um, Before a Publisher Now, and I proposed, knowing that I was going to be here at least a couple months to... Uh, the elders that um, I could do this for Sunday school since they wanted a Sunday school. And this might be a nice unit that we could cover. And so they said yes. Um, um, And so my idea is that you could get a hold of this and if you choose to, to be ahead of me a little bit in the sense that you could read it and that we could make this very um, interactive in the Sunday school. Um, and so, um, and as you pick this up, I guess it was distributed this week, so I'm not going to assume that you've read it already, but if you could strive to read it beforehand, um, I could cue you in to where we would be at. And then um, I think it would be a lot more lively dialogue if, if uh, you came and had questions. There's questions at the end of each chapter. Don't be discouraged or dismayed by the first chapter is somewhat introductory. Um, I'm trying to help people um, develop some reading strategies. Fancy word for that is hermeneutics, you know, the art of interpretation, and uh, especially for the Psalter, some of which we'll talk about today. Um, But don't be discouraged by that first chapter. I've deliberately tried to make this accessible. Uh, I don't know, sometimes my friends and editors tell me my definition of accessible is very different than others. Um, And um, so anyway, um, but the chapters are very short after we get through this introductory material. They're about 10 pages. And what I do is take one psalm out of the Asaphic Psalms and then march through that and then have some questions at the end to help encourage discussion. So uh, let me do this. Let me um, just uh, go through the opening pages. I'm not assuming that we're going to make it all the way through this material today, but we can begin to chip away at it. 
And then maybe between Catherine and I, we can coordinate getting some more chapters in your hand for in the weeks to come. I think it's except one week, I'll be here for about eight weeks. And um, so, um, you know, we can hopefully carve out a good chunk of this. And even some of the chapters are shorter than others. We may be able to like cover two chapters, read beforehand, and then we come and talk about a couple Psalms to close out the Sunday school after the worship service. Good edifying way to spend the Lord's Day. So um, let me uh, introduce what I'm trying to do here. Um, <clears throat> this project was born out of a couple requests. One was, as some of you know, I worked on the Salter Hymnal Committee, uh, this, which this is the ultimate product. It started out as an OPC project, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and our general secretary for Christian education invited me uh, to participate in the uh, subcommittee, working committee, um, as we worked through the Psalter side of things, and we did some with the hymns too, but primarily the Psalter side. And I wasn't looking for any extra work. I said, oh, I don't know, Danny, and uh, kind of dug in my hills. And he said, oh, come on, it'd just be like five psalms in between me- meetings, and it won't be a big deal. Well, he was lying straight through his teeth. And... Uh, <laughs> So my role, and if, um, if the sound guys left the uh, sound on accidentally, which hopefully they didn't, uh, uh, you know, on the singing part, I wasn't recruited for my musical or vocal gifts. I was recruited. I just recorded it for myself. <laughs> oh, good. Good. All right. Tell your dad to take you to the ear doctor. All right. Uh, so I, I was recruited to be Hebraist. So when we received our commission or marching orders from the General Assembly, the equivalent of your consistory, not consistory, the equivalent of your synod, um, the mandate was to try and get rid of archaic language, to, to have a new Psalter hymnal, uh, to have something that was faithful to the Psalms uh, with regards to the metered text, which, which is a real challenge when you put uh, text into meter and make it singable. And for English, poetry means rhyming. That doesn't, that's not the case with the Hebrews. Their poetry system is not based on writing. It's not based on meter either. It's based on um, you can do in Hebrew poetry what you can't do in prose. Um, if Daniel was here, uh, he would testify to hearing that and have that beat into him up the road. In other words, it's Yoda speak. Go to the dark side, will you? <laughs> so see, now that's not normal prose. So they would hear, without going into detail, they would hear their poetry in the syntax loosening of constraints, and then that would define their poetry. So anyway, short story long, it became evident as we began our work on this subcommittee which, by the way, even though I dug in my heels, became the most edifying ecclesiastical responsibility I've ever had to discharge. So for five years, traveled all over the country, because I was the only guy from the West Coast, and we'd meet as a committee, and we had a wiki page, if you don't know what that is, an alternative site that was password protected. It's so secret what we were doing. Uh, 
that we could look at and work on in between uh, meetings, and then we would get together, um, one PCA minister, and at that time it was OPC entirely, ministers and professors, about five, six, seven people, and then, um, and then later as the URC cut wind of what we were doing, and we threw a lot of money and time and resources at, at it, you all had your own committee going, and then even, this is not a sales thing for this, you're, you're mandated once your Senate decide, you have to purchase this and use it. So, and I get nothing from this, so this isn't a plug for the Salter Hymnal. Uh, but um, I can't tell you how edifying it was. So I translated the entire Psalter for the committee um, because there were some non-Hebraists on the committee. And imagine this, a few of the ministers had let their Hebrews slip. And, uh, but I wanted everybody to have a wooden translation to feel in English, you know, what, what, what was being said. And then we would try and understand the psalm, and then we'd choose a congruent tune to go with that psalm. See, it's not just culture's fault that we lost a whole generation to singing psalms. It's also the church's unpaid bills. Because in your old Psalter hymnal, I know because I've worked in a lot of URC churches, and this is true of a lot of Psalter hymnals. There are a lot of inappropriate tunes going with text. And what that does is it causes psychological frustration. Um, and so we tried to weed a lot of that out. We had very, very high-level musicologists working on the committee. And so the goal is to choose a coherent text that matches the meaning of the text. So anyway, this is a class about the Psalms of Asaph, not the Psalter Hymnal Committee, but I, um, I was asked to write a book um, on a section of the Psalter in a series that um, did not have anything on the Psalter. And so I said, sure, I'd be delighted to do it. I have a lot of work done on that already. And um, well, it ended up that it was, I guess, too academic for that particular publisher. So anyway, it's before another publisher now. Um, but... As I got into um, this work, I said, okay, let's choose the Asaphic Psalms. Because basically the Psalms of Asaph are Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. So that's 12 Psalms altogether. And they all have in the title in the inscription, Psalms of Asaph. The Asaphites were like the Korahites. In some way, they were responsible for um, officiating in the temple um, in uh, Jerusalem, we know that, or wherever the temple happened to be at any given time. And um, so um, that seemed like a manageable corpus, if you will. And as I say in the opening pages, it won't hurt you, even though I'm summarizing the opening pages, to go back and read this now that you have it. Um, and I'm sure it'll be much better said in writing, well, hopefully, than me uh, uh, extemporaneously summarizing here. But I was struck all the way back in 2000. I went to a professional society meeting up the road at Loyola and heard a professor named James Crenshaw talk about the Psalms of Asaph. And he was writing a manuscript that was eventually published by Oxford University Press about the notion of silence and how prominent silence, and allegedly the silence of God, was in uh, the Asaphic Psalms. 
So he was a biblical scholar who was quite concerned to do work on the idea of theodicy, which means justifying the ways of a good God in an evil world or when bad things happen to people. And so he was drawn to the Psalms of Asaph. And he had this notion where it was um, as follows. Psalm 50, um, and we'll turn there later, but Psalm 50 starts out introducing the notion of the silence of God. Now, when we say silence of God, we mean when God's people pray that, that God allegedly doesn't answer, or so it seems, okay? Or um, the temple is being ransacked, and God's allowing this to happen. Now, why is that? Um, and so it's this feeling often of abandonment. So his claim was in Psalm 50, we get the introduction of the silence theme. But in one of the verses, it says, the heavens declare the justice of God. And then as you go on, just to refresh your memory on Psalm 50, if you remember, it says that God does not need sacrifices because he owns the cattle on a thousand hill. What he really wants is covenantal obedience and praise from his people. So that's the claim in Psalm 50, which sets the theme for 73 to 83. And then 73 to 83 are individual test cases against that claim. So, for example, Psalm 73, if you remember, the first 16 verses are all about a godly Hebrew being full of anxiety because the rich, the wicked rich, are prospering. And he knows, based upon Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, and, and the Pentateuch, that that doesn't fit God's scheme as far as what he's been told. Uh, namely the law of retribution, which goes like this. The wicked get their comeuppance, namely punishment, they're supposed to, and the righteous are supposed to get their reward, namely blessings. So those are called sanctions, either punishment sanctions or reward sanctions. Now when we think about sanctions, we think about what's going to happen in North Korea if they don't behave themselves. See, and it's all negative. But just to set the tone in the class and define terms, when, when we use sanctions and we're talking about covenantal theology, they can be blessings or curses. Okay? So then Psalm 73, it, you'll remember, is all about this frustration on the part of this guy who looks out in the world and he sees the wicked rich people who are atheists prospering and, and he's full of angst and he almost jettisons his faith. And about verses 10, 11, he even says, should I recount this to the youth and scandalize them? You know, I would cause them to, to leave the reservation if I really told them how I felt. And then the Holy Spirit trumps him because it ends up in Scripture. <laughs> how much he, you know, is, is lamenting what's going on. And then, you remember uh, verse 17, until I came into the temple. And then I saw their end. Well, who's there? The Wiccan. And then the whole orientation changes. So before he was brutish in his mind, but then he came in, partook of the means of grace, imagine that, and walks out from church, so to speak, and he's totally reoriented with regards to the wicked, with regards to um, 
his own thinking with regards to God, etc., etc. Psalm 74 is all about the temple being ransacked, as we'll talk about when we get there. And, you know, and, and the psalmist is so full of angst, he goes, this is what we call severe anthropomorphism. You can ask Ryan what that means when you get back. No, it means applying to God human attributes that don't really apply to God. But God has to accommodate to us in human speech and baby talk, Calvin would say. So the psalmist says, you know, he's looking out on this. He's got PTSD, what we would call PTSD. Somebody left behind, having seen a whole population gone into exile, probably men, women, and children killed in the process. And now he's looking over the desecrated city and the desecrated sanctuary, and he says, Lord, lift up your feet. You know, don't let them trample upon the ruins in the temple. And uh, so now you have another problem with silence. This is God's people. This is God's holy place. Uh, God doesn't seem to mind, doesn't seem to mind that his temple is being desecrated and that the holy city where he places his name is being trampled upon. So now you have a problem of the silence of God. So in the opening pages, I talk about, I think James Crenshaw, this fellow I was mentioning earlier who put me onto this idea, had part of the answer and part of the notion correct. Um, this morning I got a few amens, I think. I don't know. I, I, there was a toy that went off and I didn't hear it, so maybe I misheard the amens too. Or, um, yeah, okay. And then, and then and are you going to do that in my class in a couple of years too? It's okay. You can if you want. All right. Uh, so... Um, you know, um, what you hear, what you don't hear. Um, I was staying with a dear evangelical brother and sister this week, and she was telling about hearing the voice of God, telling her she was supposed to educate, uh, homeschool her kids. And Of course, I was a polite guest. I didn't say I don't think you heard the voice of God, but anyway. Uh, so um, I think he got it partially right. But what this did is it caused me to actually start thinking about silence and do a close-grain reading of the text, Psalm 50, Psalm 73 through 83. And I don't think he got it exactly right. See, he's, he's, silence is an issue that's everywhere in our culture. Poetry, uh, I try and cite a lot of these, you know, pepper in my book with a lot of illustrations. Since Shoah, the Holocaust, the Jewish name for Holocaust, this is huge among the Jewish community. It's in ballet, even. Um, it's an art all over the place. So especially since the two great wars, silence in popular culture and more sophisticated highbrow culture is everywhere. Um, and I don't... And, and so it's not understandable that James Crenshaw is very interested in this, but, it, but often how that translates into calculus for the world is, well, that means God is absent. And that's not what I noticed when I'm going through Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 to 83. Actually, what I noticed was, James Crenshaw says, God is not silent, Psalm 50. The heavens declare the justice of God. 
He doesn't need cattle or, or sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What he wants is covenantal obedience and praise. Now, I'm a covenantal works guy. And I'm all about active obedience of Christ. I taught you a former pastor all that stuff. <laughs> Among other people. And, you know, taught him that too. I don't want to claim. But when I heard that and I read that and I heard James Crenshaw saying that, I'm all over that. Because now I say, how is the active obedience of Christ manifested in the Psalms of Scripture? Or more specifically, in Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 and 83. I'm so jealous for Christians to understand the active obedience of Christ because in most churches out there, it's all about the passive obedience of Christ and his, and his penalty-paying substitution, which is great. But you need to know not only did Christ pay for your sins, but if you believe in him and him alone, and you have an a outward-looking faith, trusting in his merit and obedience, and as you have that, then Christ imputes or gives to you his righteousness, then you can stand before God, not only as if it's just as if you never sinned, but also just as if you always and only did right. Now, as a parent, I needed to hear that. <laughs> and, and because I know I didn't always do right as a parent. And uh, so, so what I found when I went through these psalms is James Crimshaw got the idea somewhat right, but I think that a lot more could be said, especially on this issue of silence. So that's an ongoing um, theme throughout these texts. And I, I think it's there, but... Uh, you'll see as you read and as I talk about it in the weeks to come. Um, let me read you this one quote from Christoph Wolff. Because most people don't think about silence and speech very much. But silence is integral to speech. Um, so I did a lot of reading on theory of silence and linguistics too. You can't understand speech apart from silence. And you can't understand silence apart from speech. And silence always anticipates speech. Look at the quote on page three. Being silent forms the horizon before which all talk happens. It, permeate, it permeates and encloses the process of speaking. The melody of speech consists in words and pauses. Silence has its place in time in the pauses between words and phrases in which thoughts are formed. For the listener, it is necessary preliminarily... Uh, uh, it is a necessary preliminary to the decoding of semantic and metaphorical dimension of speech. Every speaker uses not only words, but also non-words, the pauses, the places, and moments of being silent. Silence is a constituent of all interaction. A person speaking causes others to be silent, making them his audience and determining their silence by his speech. See, I haven't let you ask any questions yet. Uh, or Bob Godfrey would run it right up till 14 minutes after the hour, and then he would say, any questions? Oh, sorry, we got to get over across the way. To... <laughs> a person speaking, uh, okay, we read that. They're listening as part of talking, they're also of understanding. The hearers help the speaker to create and develop his thoughts. 
So it's like my daughter and I, when we go hiking at Daily Ranch, and she's a college student, she talks about, yeah, my friend just went down to Antarctica to uh, photograph all these little foxes and everything else, and I'm thinking about dropping out of school and going down there, and uh, so I hiked for half an hour. Then I responded and said, is my silence deafening, Katie? So uh, if you noticed even this morning, uh, my pauses were not, not, not deliberate. So the pauses were pregnant on purpose, okay? So anyway, um, so that's one thing when you look at this, I think it's important to talk about. It's not that I'm, this is a study on silence, it's a study on the, um, on the um, asaphic psalms, but this is such an important motif in there, such an important theme, um, that it needed to uh, come out. So then I give a, a little uh, summary of each of the chapters. Um, you can read through that on your own. And then a little hint without having a spoiler, spoiler alert, a little hint about what I'm going to conclude. Um, and then get to the introduction, chapter 1. And so what I'm doing in chapter 1, and again, please, let me plead with you not to despair if, if indeed this is too academic and not accessible enough. The principles I'm trying to set forward in chapter 1 in the introduction are very important for reading the entire Psalter and reading Scripture generally, okay? And so that's why I have to stand back and look at the forest from the trees and say, this is, this is why we read the Bible the way we do. That's not silence. And uh, so, um, you know, <clears throat> reading Scripture properly is an art. And, and I was in Denver this last November, and somebody offered me a ride from the airport hotel downtown for a conference. And I said, sure. And I got in the car and said, oh, you're here for a conference? Yeah. Are you a Christian? I said, yeah. About 10,000 people coming in from all over the world. Oh, we're here for a conference too. Hopefully I'm not stepping on any toes here, but it's a flat earth conference. And um, oh my goodness. I was silent for 45 minutes because <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give me a word edgewise. Even though they knew I was a Hebrew guy, you know? They go, oh, we want to know all about the rakia, the canopy, which allegedly the rockets bounce off of when we send them up there. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I must have heard the word literal, I wish I was counting, 75 times in 45 minutes. And um, so, you know, you know, to read the Bible literally according to the reformers like Calvin and Luther and that kind of, you know what that means, don't you? It means read the Bible writers as they intended to communicate. So, you know, they didn't intend for the canopy of the earth to be interpreted as a hard disk that rockets bounce off of and don't get into outer space. <laughs> or even all the poetry we read this morning from this very sublime poet, Isaiah 40. Um, so, you know, we're, we're about... Uh, Mike Brown was about this, um, William Godfrey is about this, I'm about this. You know, you, you, you don't read the Bible literalistically, you read it, read it literally, and not literarily, according to the literary intent, okay? So anyway, um, all right. So that's what we need to jump into. Good stopping point. Any questions? Yes.
I don't know him, but I know the president of Grove City, and I'm pretty bullish on Grove City as a college. So, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, T. David Gordon. Right. Um, so uh, I, I've not read those books. I know the thesis. I think he's right. Why Johnny can't sing hymns and why Johnny can't preach. He wrote a couple of these. And you know the reason why Johnny can't preach? Because Johnny don't read. No, seriously. I mean, that's, that's T. David. So D, T. David's actually written a chapter for a book that I helped edit. And... Uh, and he's a good friend. I'm glad he survived his cancer. And uh, so, um, and his classes, they're just waiting lists. They're very, very hard to get into. Um, why Johnny can't sing, uh, I understand, it was um, along the lines of similar critique, you know, that uh, culturally uh, people are uh, not used to good singing or let alone uh, matching psalms with congruent tunes. Um, in viticulture terms, they've grown used to two-buck chuck instead of $50 bottles of well-aged Cabernet. T. David would be happy with that illustration. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is against the grain. Uh, you know, I mean, this church now has grown to the size that it has, and, and I would venture to say a lot of people are coming from backgrounds where they had to have their palate adjusted in order to get ready for the, you know, this kind of worship and this kind of liturgy. So, yeah, and so, um, but we shouldn't despair. Like, the reason I gave five years working my um, bums off on this was, was because um, we lost a generation, and um, my hope is that, you know, um, it's not perfect, but maybe we can regain a generation or two as, as we have more congruent tunes and better hymns, get rid of some of the revivalistic hymns, and uh, better hymns represented from the whole period of church. There's not a lot of good hymns from early in the church, uh, extant hymns. There are good hymns, but we don't have as many. So that's what we tried to do together with some of your own people like Derek Vandermeulen and that kind of thing. I could say more, but that might take us off track. Is that helpful? Yeah. Lack of what? Yeah. Sure, no, that's a great question. Um, Yes, thank you. I do want to do that. Thank you. Uh, um, so the question is, can you comment about our culture and maybe why silence uh, is such a missing theme? Because, and correct me if I'm not restating it correctly, um, you know, the busyness, the social media, and, and the hectic velocity with which we all go and that kind of thing. I think it's a really good question. And... Um, I think it was Pascal who said a lot of man's problems arrive from his inability to just sit still. And um, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and examine himself. Um, the Germans have a term called Sitzfleisch, um, to be able to sit quietly and do something productive for long periods of time without fidgeting. 
And um, so I think it's true. I mean, these things can become a kind of Novocaine for the soul, can't they? Um, as far as busyness, as far as social media. And uh, my daughter, now, now I'll praise her since I uh, mentioned her. Hopefully she didn't listen to this. Uh, so we, we waited a long time to let our kids, I'm, I'm not mandating this for everybody, but we waited a long time for our kids to get cell phones, usually until they drop, started driving. And of course all the peers had them when they were five, and so we heard about that incessantly, um, and not silently. And, uh, and I, I try and take my kids out individually to do things, and so we were at Olive Garden, my daughter and I, and there was like a table of about 10 people, and they're all sitting around like this with their cell phones. And, not, and, and there's one little kid, toddler, watching 10 adults. Not one of them is interacting with the others. So, you know, you cannot not communicate. So I didn't say it, but I used a little nonverbal communication, and I kind of went, what I'm doing right now is I'm tipping my head over to my daughter to look at the other table, for those of you that aren't here. So, you know, I kind of go. <laughs> she goes, she rolls her eyes, you know. And uh, so we got her a cell phone, and just recently we were out in Joshua Tree, and I took her out to lunch, and I had to let mom know everything was a-okay, so I'm texting during lunch, and dad, they came back to, to bite me, you know. I think it's true, though. Yeah, I mean, uh, you see this in, in our student body. Um, you know, we get great students and very thankful for them, many from Grove City um, and, um, and elsewhere. But, but uh, the ability to take good notes, to follow a lecture, to give that back to the professor, to do the reading, voluminous reading that we ask them to do, which requires sitting for a long time without fidgeting, doing something productive. We, we see the consequences all over. But yeah, I, I do think it also, you know, affects our spiritual lives as well. You know, the ability to sit and, and be quiet and meditate and reflective. Oh, that's a shot at it. Okay, introduction. Let me uh, say, this is good timing. So um, let me say a few things about these opening parts. And then I'm going to turn you loose to uh, look at this on your own. And then hopefully come back next week uh, with questions. Not just the questions at the end, but let me say it now. Uh, we're not bumping up against the end of the class yet, but... Let me talk about genre. Uh, that's the next section here in the introduction. And then also this thing called the rule of faith. And, um, and then if I can um, commend to you all the next sections in this introduction and Psalm 50. If you're able, why don't you try and carve out a little time in silence uh, turn off the cell phones and the boob tube and whatever else. And they aren't that long. This, um, and they, uh, once you get to the, to the um, uh, individual chapters, it's one psalm basically per chapter. And you'll see, of course, uh, they're all Christ-centered. 
okay? But how they're Christ-centered uh, may be different from other places in Scripture that Mike or William or others have told you about. And uh, so we want to see how they're Christ-centered, okay? But in order to understand this, we need to talk about two things, first of all, in the remaining 10 minutes. Let me introduce the concept of genre and the rule of faith. So meaning is communicated through form as well as content. Now that claim could as just as easily been taught in a comparative literature class or an English class as in a Sunday school. But this is great literature and uh, therefore the literature of the Bible and in particular and specifically the Psalms, um, they communicate meaning through their form as well as their content, in other words, the words. Now, in Western literature, we, we had uh, fragments of Aristotle's poetics. And Aristotle's poetics talked about different genres, different types of literature. So one of the largest extant sections talked about tragedies. What makes for the best tragedy? Okay. Uh, when bad things happen to a good character, okay? And so, in the ancient Near East, in which the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament uh, falls, we don't have anything like that kind of manual. But that doesn't mean that there weren't genre types, okay? And so I talk about the history of genre research here, uh, briefly. And it used to be, up until about the 18th century, that Christians would try to read the Psalms according to the historical descriptions in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and that kind of thing. So they'd read about a Psalm, they'd go, oh, this matches with this, and so that must be the background. There's only 14 titles in the Psalms that actually describe a potential historical event as the background to the Psalm. Only 14. So that's why we have a lot of standalones. We're not sure what the historical background was. But along came a couple of German authors in the 18th and 19th century that began to talk about um, forms. They thought there were these set forms for composing the Trinity Psalter hymnal, so to speak, in the temple. Okay, so for example, um, you had laments. There's a lot of laments in um, the, the Psalter. In fact, almost all of Book 1, there's five books in the Psalter. So Book 1 is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. By and large, laments, not entirely, like Psalm 8 is a hymn, but if you just started working through uh, Book 1 of the Psalter, you'd find all these laments. Um, and then there's royal psalms that have to do with the monarchy, or a king, or a ruler, Solomon, David, etc. cetera. Uh, then there's wisdom psalms that are full of wisdom ideas. Fear of the Lord. Uh, my son sings. My son do this, don't do this. Um, and wisdom vocabulary. Anyway, uh, and then hymns, of course, some of which we sang this morning, uh, that have to do almost entirely with praise. Well, the point is, genres set reading expectations, okay? So, when you pick up your Bible, 
hopefully, you're not reading it like an engineering manual. Or when you, um, when you pick up uh, your Bible, hopefully you're not reading it like um, a study guide for a CPA exam. Um, it wasn't intended to be read that way, okay? So cueing in to different aspects about what's going on in an individual psalm sets reading expectations. So when people sit down to write something, they, they direct their readership to form expectations. It's almost like a covenant of discourse. So if I say once upon a time, your expectations are already set. Okay? Um, if we start off and the accompanist is playing in a minor tune, your expectations are already set. We're probably going to be singing a lament out of the Psalter. Okay? So these become very, very important for how you read a psalm. Okay? Because that's the way language works. It's a game, so to speak. Now, I'm using all this. This all flows out of the literature about how to understand genres. So um, there's been different metaphors used to help understand this. So when people play a game, uh, they agree to abide by the rules. Okay? So the Sermon on the Mount does not work on the gridiron. <laughs> you don't turn the other cheek. Now, you may lean over and help the guy up that you just knocked down, Okay, um, but you don't turn the other cheek, um, especially if you're a running back or a linebacker, all right? All right, that's the first notion. You can read what I say to supplement that. Bring questions next week. The rule of faith is another uh, concept. Turn here to, it's probably uh, easiest to uh, put this on the board. It's there in front of you. The rule of faith has been much misunderstood, Okay. Uh, primarily because it's often been um, not articulated correctly. Okay, the rule of faith was a notion that was developed by Irenaeus, an early church father, to actually combat heresy. And so basically he said, now for some of you this may sound very Catholic, but what I'm presenting to you is not a Catholic notion, Roman Catholic notion, of the rule of faith. So Irenaeus would say, those heretics, they don't see Christ as the unfolding center of the narrative of Scripture, whether you're reading Kings or whether you're reading the Psalms or whatever. So he had this uh, metaphor. They read the overarching story of Scripture as painting a dog. Okay, uh, whereas we read here, rule of faith, the overarching story of scripture should be painting a king. Okay, and you know the overarching picture. Okay, when you read all the stories together. Okay, that's what it's, it's going towards. So he used this as a tool uh, to combat heresies at, at the time. Okay, this is the way we in the true Orthodox faith. Christian faith, read the scriptures, as opposed to those heretics who see a different outcome. Well, then be, people began 
talking about this. Old Testament leads to the New Testament, reading the New Testament, and then the rule of faith, the way the Orthodox Church reads the Bible, then leads to the development of creeds. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, now the rule of faith can become a canon above the canon of Scripture, such that this can become a kind of template that's superimposed on the Old Testament to see something that may not be there. Whereas I'm suggesting that the right way to read the rule of faith is, is Christ revealed in the Old Testament? Yes. Christ is one with God. And so when God is active in the Old Testament, Christ is active in the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament. He's not incarnate as the Son of God yet. He's not the Word made flesh, but he really there, is there in the Old Testament. So guess what? Even before the 27 books of the New Testament came out, God already had published a book. He already had a book out. <laughs> it's called the 77% of the Bible, namely the Old Testament. And it teaches Christ. It teaches Christ apart from the New Testament. I'm not trying to be pejorative towards the New Testament, but if you can get your mind wrapped around this notion, it will transform the way you read the Old Testament. Because if Christ is there in the Old Testament, and he truly is revealed as God, and the pre-Messianic, pre-incarnate Christ, then when the death and resurrection of Christ comes along, and then suddenly the apostles are applying the rule of faith, and they go, ah, now I see... You know, not the dog, but the king. And then that puts pressure on the New Testament apostles so that the Holy Spirit, together with their understanding, their fully understanding, now they're writing New Testament scripture and they're also producing creeds. God already had a book out in the Old Testament. So when you read these Asaphic Psalms, you're reading about Christ. And not just because one New Testament author may allude to one of these Asaphic Psalms, but because Christ himself is really revealed in these Asaphic Psalms ahead of time. Now I can see the deer going across the highway. <laughs> uh, and that's okay. Um, but there I quote Luke 24. You remember... I'm sure this has been talked about in this church before. Remember when Jesus uh, returns after the resurrection, he's walking down the road to Emmaus, and he reveals how he himself was, was there in the Old Testament scriptures, and these adult disciples like us, you know, are kind of going, how, you know? I don't see it in the chronicles, of, or in the, uh, in the genealogies of chronicles. Do you? <laughs> Nine chapters. I mean, if William preaches, what? Assuming he comes, if he if he preaches through nine chapters of uh, of uh, chronicles and takes three months to do that, somebody better call Bob, his dad. All right, uh, but you know you know what it's all focused on in the genealogies. Take a guess, what tribe? What son? Judah. That's right. 
in a very sophisticated, literally shaped way, Judah is the center of those nine, gene nine chapters of genealogies. So my point is, okay, now I am, I, I, I want to respect the time and respect what the elders have set up as far as uh, conventions for, for all. And even those of you who decide not to go home and stay, Estelle's not always going to like be tardy and keep you after the hour, right? Uh, but um, the rule of faith is an extremely important, powerful tool that we'll talk about as we look at these psalms. And especially in this day and age, how many people have heard of Bart Ehrman? Um, this, this is one of the primary ways to combat all the craziness that's challenging notions, traditional orthodox notions about the canon. Okay? And so, uh, so that's part, part of the reason why I put it in there. All right. So next week, I'm not going to do this much talking in the future. I'm really going to hope that you will read. Read up through Psalm 50. And maybe, Catherine, we can get the next chapter ready and hand it out to people. And then the week after that, um, we'll skip up to 73. But uh, do your reading on this. And, and I try and talk about why 50 came first and then 73 to 83 and then a few other things. And bring your questions. They don't have to just be answers to the questions I put at the end. But hopefully um, you can bring your questions. We can have some good discussion generated and hopefully be edified by this part of the Psalter. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You are a merciful and kind God. Um, please continue to feed us throughout this day and uh, give us good rest as well. And uh, thank you for your scriptures, all of them. They are indeed broader than all the heavens. We thank you for the Psalms of Asaph and we pray that you might enable us to see Christ as we study them together in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attention.